I don't need help. I'm not in an abusive relationship. This is just how it is for us. It's a lie we tell ourselves, one that many in abusive relationships repeat until they believe it. But there's hope. Welcome to I'm Not In An Abusive Relationship, a podcast about surviving domestic and sexual violence. This show is about hope. You will hear from survivors of abuse, and their stories may sound familiar. They may even inspire hope. Our goal is to connect with others in these toxic relationships to offer that hope, and with supporters of our mission, anyone willing to help get rid of abuse in our culture. We also talk with the experts in the field, from the officers on the front lines of domestic abuse calls to the therapists and advocates helping survivors navigate this complicated road of recovery. If you're in need of help, please visit our website or call our 24-7 hotline, 800-828-2023. And if this is an emergency and you need help immediately, please call 911. Welcome once again to I'm Not in an Abusive Relationship. This is Claudia Falls, and I've been talking with Elizabeth Alderson, the one of the clinical therapists at DASIS. The, um, we were talking about effects of domestic violence on the brain and various uh, areas of the brain. And, um, and Liz, we're just going to continue our, our conversation. So welcome back once again. Thanks for having me. Always. Um, so we've talked about a lot of effects that domestic violence has on the brain, physical effects, as well as others. And, and of course, you know, we hear um, for many reasons about how many people are, are depressed and, and dealing with depression, and uh, especially in this, this time frame that we're living in right now. But domestic violence, I would assume, would... I, it would depress me for, for sure. I mean, and, 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 you know, things depress people or you get sad or depressed, but we're talking about a different level of depression here. Absolutely. Yeah. And so domestic violence can lead to depression in people. And I think there's the thing to talk about depression. Cause I often talk about this with any mental health or many, many mental illnesses, there's a difference between, you know, being depressed today because the sun wasn't out and it's winter and things didn't go well today. Right. That's, mm -hmm. you know, that's depression. That's an emotion sure. that we can experience, sure. but when it becomes pervasive, when it's every day, I'm depressed, no matter what happened, that's when it's like a mental illness. And then we've typically need to do something about it because, um, and I always say that because, yeah, you're going to be depressed sometimes and that's okay. You know, sometimes depression gets a bad rap um, and it's, it's healthy. It's okay to be depressed about some things. It's just when I can't get myself out of depression that it becomes an unhealthy piece. And definitely domestic violence can lead to that pervasive depression. I never want to get out of bed. I don't want to eat. You know, it's difficult to concentrate all those things that are um, what we, what we would consider a diagnosis in depressed depression. And so how would people even begin to deal with this? I mean, well, first off, recognizing that this is, you know, not only are you in an abusive situation, but also dealing with the, the end result, well, not end result, but the depression that that is causing, those are like a whole lot of things to deal with all at the same time. Absolutely. And so I want to start with just some like basic information just about depression, but also um, how often depression 
happens in people. So again, people who are diagnosed with a disorder and depression. So it's constant. It's every day for days and weeks and months on end. Um, the World Health Organization, so who they, in their research, they have said that 300 million people worldwide are dealing with depression as this persistent kind of thing, right? Wow. And that survivors of domestic violence are twice as likely to suffer from depression as women who have not experienced domestic violence. So that research, they were looking specifically at women. Um, so obviously male survivors, children can, can suffer from depression because of domestic violence. It was that research was just on women, but twice as likely. So depression is, is very likely in our survivors of domestic violence. Um, it's common in the world too. And I say that just because, um, I, part of my mental health work is to not cause shame and guilt in people about their mental health condition or um, what they're going through, because you're clearly dealing with enough. You don't need shame and guilt about, I'm depressed too, on top of my domestic violence relationship. You may be, and that's okay. That's where you currently are, but to know that you're not alone in that. Other people are experiencing depression as well. It's not just you in the world. Mm -hmm. And so, well, you know, from my point of view, I would assume that every client would be depressed as, you know, as they come to you and they're beginning to, to reach out to, to heal from, from all of the abuse or to, to end it for themselves and their children and how that works. Um, but, but I would assume that would not be the case that you can't just say, well, they must also be depressed. So how, how does that, how would you go about treating or talking with people differently? obviously there are going to be some signs that go beyond just, you know, a normal reaction to the trauma. Yeah. So when we look at depression, we're looking for significant changes in the way that you used to go through life, you know, so that your behaviors, your thoughts have, have significantly changed. Cause again, it's not about it being today I'm depressed. It's daily, weekly, monthly. I've been, I've been dealing with this. And so we look at a loss of energy you know, I'm tired and fatigued all day long, even though I didn't do anything. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm just, ugh, I, ugh, I don't want to get out of bed. I can't get off the couch. I just, um, in severe depression, um, there's a symptom called catatonic. And so that's the inability to move. And so my depression is so deep that I've seen clients, um, in my, my persistent and severe mental health work that I used to do, um, who would sit on the couch and like defecate and wet on themselves because wow. they had no energy to, to get off the couch and go to the bathroom, even though the bathroom was five feet away. So there's, again, there's a range of all these things. I could not leave my bed for three days, but I could still get up to go pee, get some food, but I'm going right, right. back to bed, depression. Right. And then there's depression. There's, there's always a different scale of severity and all the different symptoms of it. So it could, it could be, you know, all those different ranges. Well, so if you are in a domestic abuse situation, I'd, what, what do you deal with first? I mean, what the depression or, well, I have to shake this off because I have to, you know, not trigger the abuse or, um, wow, that's just a, a, a sad situation to be in. Yeah. So in, um, in therapy, we always deal with um, what the client, so our therapy is always client focused, client centered. So it's what does the client 
What are their goals and what do they want to work on? So for many survivors that I work with, they have no desire or intention to leave their relationship because there's some real value that they have in that relationship. And absolutely so. There's some real value I have in my relationships. I wouldn't necessarily want to leave some of them either, even if they were unhealthy, right? And so many survivors come in saying, okay, I want to deal with this depression thing and I want to learn to create boundaries so that person doesn't affect me the way that they do, but I still wanna have that relationship with them. And so that's what we're gonna work on. We're gonna work on whatever the client wants to work on because if I want you to leave your relationship that I think is unhealthy, but you don't think it's unhealthy, you are not gonna enjoy therapy with me. Right. You're going to leave therapy and then whatever your goals were, you're, you might not work on them independently and you may never go back to therapy because you met with me and all I wanted to do was push my agenda. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there's, yeah, there's that balance of it's whatever the client wants to work on. So if they want to work on the depression, we're going to work on that. And then after working on depression, if they realize, cause I'm always looking for client when I'm with clients, we're always looking at what, what's the thing that we're working on. But what is, what are the, what are the triggers? What's making that depression come into play? What are the things in my environment? Because we're people in our environment. You know, the world affects me just as much as I affect the world. So what has been causing or what has been leading to this depression? What around you is kind of doing that? And so oftentimes I'll have clients do an emotion diary card where they rate what emotions they experienced. I give them a list of different emotions, how intense those emotions were and what happened like in response to those emotions, but what also happened before those emotions came up, you know? So what caused or triggered that emotion to happen? Yeah. Yeah. And so kind of tracking it. And so if they can then self-identify after a few weeks or months of tracking that every time I see this person, I get depressed and my action and my moods changed is, you know, okay, then what boundaries do I create around that person? And then is that person even, um, is what has their value changed in being in a relationship with that person? Hmm. You know, but that's everybody, you know, So can you learn to not let that person trigger those emotions or is that, I don't know. Yeah, I think it's, it, maybe it's just a different phrase. So, cause I think triggers are triggers, we, but we can learn how to lessen the intensity of those triggers. And we can, with practice, learn how to desensitize a trigger to the point where it no longer triggers us. That's what they use for um, exposure therapy. That's the process of exposure therapy, you know, so if you see a, if you see a snake, a garter snake, you know, those are popular here in Michigan, um, and you see one and you are terrified of snakes, So you walk into, I was going to say a room because I deal with them in my basement, but if you walk into the outside, you know, on your deck and there's a garter snake, you might be gone, right? Yeah. 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 You are running, right? You are in full flight mode. Right. And so 
then you're, yeah, yeah I'm on the move or I'm not going to go outside for a few days. Or then eventually you, you're looking out the window to see if it's out there. Okay, I can go on my deck now, right? Okay, now I can, I can sit out there for a little bit, but you're still watching, right? right. And so um, exposure therapy will slowly and gradually uh, expose someone to that kind of fear response, that thing that brings anxiety. And eventually after appropriate length of time in therapy, because again, this isn't just like go hold a boa constrictor. It's <laughs> you start with just talking about snakes and then you look at like cartoon pictures and then you look at real, you know, it's a very specific process, exposure therapy. Um, but if you eventually people can hold snakes even though they were once terrified of them. And so we do have the ability to desensitize those triggers. We just have to figure out what they are first. Mm-hmm. And that's well, the key, especially with depression. What is, what in your environment is leading to this depression? Right, right. And of course, if it's domestic abuse, I mean, that, that's a whole different layer of, I don't know that you, that you could desensitize to that because it's, a physical and emotional thing being perpetrated on the victim. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And unfortunately, oftentimes, um, no matter what's happening in that relationship, that depression might happen because the behaviors might change. Right. So, so maybe I choose to leave this unhealthy relationship for a lot of reasons, but one of them is my depression, right? So maybe I don't see that person anymore, but I might still deal with depression because now my marriage is over or now my relationship is over and I had to move, right? Those, all those things cause depression. Now right. I'm alone. Now I don't have a date for the holidays and for Valentine's day and stuff like that. So that will cause depression. Um, what about having to go through a custody battle because you share a child with that person? And then you're depressed when that child has to go over to that person's house and then they come back and they're like, yeah, so-and-so did blah, blah, blah. And you, right. You feel, we feel for our kids. And so then it's like, oh, right. So we might still experience depression, but it's new environmental changes around us. So even though you may think that, Um, So the domestic violence is causing the depression. Depression is its own physical ailment that even though the domestic abuse situation can be better or rectified or whatever, just that's not going to cure it. That it's a like it's its own entity by itself. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So with all mental health, um, mental illness, we think about depression, depression, we have two kind of causations for depression. So it's our environment, because we're people in the environment. So the environment's going to infect me, affect me. But also, there's a genetic predisposition to mental health. Now, genetically, there's some research about passing on specific mental health diagnoses. Um, More common in research, what you'll see is um, a validation that you're predisposed to any mental health because a parent had had dealt with it. Same thing as addiction, right? We see addiction be predisposition to be passed down genetically, but just because your parent was an alcoholic doesn't mean you're going to be an alcoholic. You might be, you know, you might use another substance or another behavior, right? And so it's that just, it's the the likelihood you might experience this. And so um, you could, you could get, 
and deal with depression because of a genetic component in your brain. Because when we think about depression, just like we thought about anxiety when we talked about the brain and stuff, depression is a chemical in our brain that our brain is releasing because of the environment around us. But it also, our brain could be releasing that chemical because our neuroreceptors, so the little things in your brain that actually release the chemical and the little things in your brain that like connect to the chemical that like absorb it, we might be just chemically producing too much or too little of any chemical in our brain. And then that leads to depression. So it could Which be is, chemical imbalance in our brain, not focused. And that kind of leads to all of the different kinds of medications that can help reconnect those things. Yes, exactly. Yep. And that's what they do. Um, there's typically two different types of mental health medications. Obviously, there's a lot of different brands. There's a lot of different chemical changes in them. But there's two different like large types for when we think about like depression and anxiety. So those are mm -hmm. moods those are emotions. And so we call those like mood stabilizers. And so those medications, there's typically, like I said, two kinds, one increases the production of a chemical, because then because think about it, we're having an imbalance in our brain. Right. And so I, you know, if I'm depressed, if I, if my brain chemically increases the production of a, of a chemical that makes me happy, then my imbalance is going to be even because I was disbalanced or some medications will not increase the production of a chemical. They will block the receptors that are absorbing the chemical. So again, I have too much depression in my brain. I have too many depression chemicals in my brain. And so the things that absorb it, I, we're going to block some of those. So they don't absorb it as quickly. So the chemicals are still there, but my brain's not absorbing it. Therefore, I feel less depressed. So the balance. So that if, if like you're making the, the happy chemicals and mm -hmm. your body isn't absorbing it, then it's, you're still going to be depressed. Or if you're making it and your body's absorbing too much of it, then the only thing left is the depression. So being mm -hmm. able to, to, you know, balance that was well, kind of like, if you have tonsillitis, you know, I mean, you can let it sit there for a long time and never get better, or you can take the medication that's going to make your body able to cope with what's going on with that. Yeah. So, and again, that's a, a very simple way of looking at the medications. Obviously, you know, talk to your pharmacist if you want to know exactly what's happening and what that, what that medicine is doing. I'm not a pharmacist, but that's the kind of simple way of thinking about what they're, what those, what those medicines are doing in our brains. And that's why they're effective. That's why, again, think about it. Okay. So I'm in a domestic violence relationship, but then my brain, because I'm depressed is releasing more of these chemicals. And so that's, sure. yeah, that's why medication's effective for sure. But that leads to the, then if I live in this domestic violence relationship for a long time, my brain might continue overproducing these depression chemicals and that might have last, have like long lasting effects. Yeah, I might leave the relationship. I might not have kids. I might have a great support system, but five years later, I'm still depressed about that old relationship that I had in high right. school, right? A lot of my survivors had unhealthy relationships in high school and early adulthood and they're now in their 30s and 40s and dealing with the effects that that relationship when they were 18 had on them and how it's a continuing continually 
affecting them today. Mm-hmm. Wow. Sometimes it's that chemical response or it's those brain memories. You know, we think about our brain, it stores all those memories. The sad thing about the good thing and sad thing about our brain, you know, and it's in its ability to store and do all these cool, amazing things mm-hmm. is sometimes our brain doesn't remember a memory versus present day activities. Oh. And so, wow. And so that can, you know, that can kind of that depression piece can by, can kind of be a part of that. If I'm in a new healthy relationship, but I always feel like ugh around something, maybe the holidays, because those were bad in my previous relationship. Well, my brain's remembering these holidays and it's not remembering my current relationship. Mm-hmm. It's remembering the relationship I had when I was 18. And so all those emotions just automatically show up, even though what's going on currently is, is good. Mm-hmm. And that's sometimes where that pervasive then mental health. So maybe I am depressed clinically, you know, maybe I do have a depressed diagnosis because I'm feeling this over time, even though the environment is healthy, because maybe it's a chemical imbalance now. Right. Well, and so maybe some of our listeners who say, well, I always, you know, this is, I always don't like the holidays or I've always felt this way. Being able to deal with some of that, it's like, oh, well, maybe I don't always have to feel that way. And I can move forward into what some of these good emotions and and possibilities are for me, rather Mm -hmm. than hanging on to what I've always done. Absolutely. Yeah. One of my um, favorite things to do in therapy, and it's definitely a skill I learned during all of my education and stuff was to, when you have a, obviously a relationship with the client you're working with and stuff is to challenge exactly what you said. Is it always and never? Because rarely do always and never actually exist. Right. And so I'm talking with clients and they're, I'm all, I always feel this way. Okay. Well, find a time today that you didn't feel that way. Mm-hmm. Find a time this week you didn't feel that way. And then we keep track of them. Just like I said, we keep track of our emotions that we're experiencing. We keep track of the opposite emotion. You know, if I'm always depressed, well, what made you smile this week? And they'll, they'll find something eventually. We'll find something, right? And so it's that piece of that's a time. That was one moment when I didn't feel that other thing. Okay, let's make more of those moments. Mm-hmm, right. And we challenge that always and never thinking because, you know, they, they do, they rarely happen that we're, we never, we rarely live in a never and always world. But yet that's, but people automatically assume that you live in a never and always world, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of times, and this would happen maybe with, with teachers or with groups of people, when a group gets together, you kind of expect people in the group to act a certain way because they always act such a way, you know, where, Mm -hmm. so that then becomes how you approach them or they think they need to fit into that opinion, whether even they realize it or not. Yeah. Well, think of the hopelessness that exists if I will always be in a domestic violence relationship and I will always be depressed because I was once in a domestic violence relationship. That is hopeless. Right. Oh, right. That is a heavy burden to carry. And many survivors of domestic violence carry that burden and to just spark just an ounce of hope that says, do you 
always have to be in a domestic violence relationship. Is there a 1% possibility that you could have a relationship that was healthy and didn't have domestic violence in it? Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes, you know, early on, you know, no, that's, that's not a possibility. But the hope is that eventually that could, that no could change to maybe, right? Because then it's, where are healthy relationships around me? You know, let's mimic, let's find them. Let's look at other people around us and stuff. Because again, not everyone's in a domestic violence relationship. So it's that never and always. And so that slow, gradual change, because, you know, to be able to find activities and people that bring me joy, that is a direct conflict in my depressed thinking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and to realize that, you know, I'm certain that in the middle of depression, you have to think I'm always going to feel like this. I'm never going to be happy again. I'm never going to be able to, you know, cook dinner or go shopping or do whatever it is that would be normal that you would enjoy. It's like, no, I I can't, that's never going to happen again because of all of those feelings and, and emotions that you have in the middle of that depression that little spark, one little spark at a time to realize that you can climb out of that will lead to hope and healing. Mm -hmm. And even if, because for some people, depression is a chemical imbalance that they deal with for the rest of their life. Even if that is something that you deal with for the rest of your life, you can still live a life that includes includes joy and happiness and love and compassion because what sometimes abusers will do when their partner has a depression diagnosis is they'll use that against them in like a custody battle or they'll use that against them with their friends and family well they're a bad parent because they're depressed and they have hard days well you know who doesn't have a bad day right Right. Who doesn't want to get out of bed some days? Like, is my kid alive? Okay, then we're fine, right? Like, I don't, I don't have to be a hundred and ten percent parent at all times. Like, I can have some bad days. We can get behind in laundry, okay? That's okay. Let's <laughs> normalize behind in laundry, right? But it's those things. Does that make me a bad parent when I'm having difficulty concentrating, difficulty sleeping, when I'm restless, when I'm dealing with depression? Absolutely not. You know, and so for people who are dealing with depression, and maybe it's for years, and they're in mental health treatment, and they're taking medication and all that kind of stuff, and someone tries to use that against them. If you're doing everything that you possibly can, and you still have this thing, that is okay. That's your brain. So again, let's take away that guilt. Let's take away that shame. Mental health is okay. Mental health diagnosis is okay. It happens. Sometimes it's for a moment in our lives sometimes it's lifelong but it doesn't have to define who I am I'm not Elizabeth depressed person I'm Elizabeth and maybe I battle depression right but depression doesn't have to define who I am and it doesn't have to define who a survivor is because like I said abusers will take all those little things and they'll use them they'll use them against victims they'll use them Mm -hmm. against survivors and so for a survivor to be educated, to have a good um, therapist, a psychiatrist, you know, that's able to, to validate with them and say, yeah, this might be something you deal with the rest of your life. It doesn't define who you are. It's just something you deal with. And, and those were two words you used. Dealing with it is not letting it overcome you mm-hmm. and battling. You use that word as well. So um, realizing that you may be 
this may be part of your life and being able to move forward and sustain everything else in your life. It's just a little part of it mm -hmm. is uh, definitely helpful. Because mm -hmm. a lot of the work that we do is mental health related, obviously as a therapist, but even our advocates and stuff. I mean, we've been working in the mental health field, even though, you know, our primary focus is domestic violence, sexual assault those things impact our mental health. And oh, yeah. I think as a nation and worldwide, you know, we're trying to normalize and reduce the stigma of mental health and especially for our survivors, just like domestic violence and sexual assault doesn't have to define you, neither does your mental health diagnosis. And a good psychiatrist, you know, who's someone who's diagnosing you with a mental health issue or concern and prescribing medications, because that's the beauty of a psychiatrist, they get to diagnose you and give you medications for it, prescribe you medications for it. Um, for some people, they don't have to have that diagnosis for the rest of their life. And so maybe 10 years from now, you know, you're in a new relationship, you know, things have changed, you're using your skills. Do you still fit the criteria for that mental health diagnosis? And if you don't, you know, um, a good psychiatrist would then take that diagnosis off of your medical charts because you no longer fit the criteria for that. Sure. So your brain can heal. Your depression absolutely. can be yeah, cured. Absolutely. Exactly. And your situation, you know, trans transforming from victim to survivor to mm -hmm. mentally healthy um, individual is all in the realm of possibility. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because again, it's all on that spectrum. There may be days and there may not be days, you know, and so it's that beauty of there are a lot of different possibilities. We are each unique, wonderful creatures and our brains are just as wonderfully unique. And so that there is hope and there is healing for domestic violence, just as much as there is hope and healing for people who experience depression and for those who experience both of those things. And that is just the perfect way to end our podcast today. Thank you so much for being with us. This has been enlightening as always. Um, if you would like more information or would like to talk to someone about some of the situations that you may find yourself in if you're listening today, our 800 number, 1-800-828-2023, and always online at dasismi.org. Thank you, Elizabeth, so much. You're always so wonderful to talk with. Thank you. Thank you for listening to I'm Not In an Abusive Relationship. If these stories resonate with you and you need help, please visit our website, dasasmi.org. That's dasasmi.org or call our hotline at 800-828-2023. We are here to walk alongside you. Now, if you know someone who might benefit from our show, please share it. Social media, email, simply telling someone about it all help us spread the word and help us to combat domestic and sexual violence. We also welcome financial and volunteer support. That information is on our website. Thank you to the staff, volunteers, and board of directors at Domestic and Sexual Abuse Services. This podcast is produced with the help of a committee of dedicated advocates. Thank you to WBET Radio in Sturgis, Michigan for the use of their studio. This has been a podcast about surviving domestic and sexual violence and a production of Domestic and Sexual Abuse Services of Michigan.